very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. everyone around the world and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time or your truth journey brought you here, welcome home. And if you want to listen to every part of tonight's show, you know what to do by now. Go to VeritasRadio.com and subscribe. You can choose three months all the way to two years and you'll get your login immediately and we'll have access to hundreds and hundreds of hours of truth. And if you want to give your life an upgrade, go to sanitasradio.com and find out what we have to offer there. You will not be disappointed. I guarantee it. Now for those of you who want to reach me, want to write to us, you want to be a guest on this radio program or want to offer suggestions or have questions or feedback, I always love to hear from you. Just click on the contact button of our website. Classified space programs have been an integral part of a complex jigsaw puzzle concerning UFOs, extraterrestrial life, ancient civilizations, and advanced aerospace technologies, which have long defied any coherent understanding. Now finally, we have something to put all the pieces together with the disclosures of secret space program whistleblowers. A detailed investigation of insider testimonies reveals the big picture of a parallel world of secret space programs and extraterrestrial alliances. Tonight we'll discuss how the Vril and Nazi flying saucer programs in the 1930s gave birth to the Dark Fleet, how Operation Paperclip scientists both helped and hindered the development of the U.S. Navy's Solar Warden, how the MJ-12 group was behind the creation of the interplanetary corporate conglomerate, and how Ronald Reagan was instrumental in the creation of the Global Galactic League of Nations space program. The full disclosure of secret space programs and extraterrestrial alliances will unshackle the chains of deception, holding humanity back from reaching its highest potential as galactic citizens. This is all included in a new book titled Insiders Reveal Secret Space Programs and Extraterrestrial Alliances, authored by tonight's special guest and veteran of this radio program, Dr. Michael Sala, an internationally recognized scholar in international politics, conflict resolution, and U.S. foreign policy, with a Ph.D. in government from the University of Queensland, Australia. Dr. Sala is a pioneer in the development of exopolitics, the study of the main actors, institutions, and political processes associated with extraterrestrial life. He is the founder of the Exopolitics Institute and the Exopolitics Journal. And to learn more about Dr. Michael Sala and his work, and purchase all his books, 
go to exopolitics.org, which is also linked at ours. And directly from Kalapana, Hawaii, I would like to welcome Dr. Michael Sala. Hello, Michael, and welcome back to Veritas. Aloha, Mel. Great to be back. Always, always a pleasure. I can't believe I was looking at the calendar, and the last time we had you on was 2013. Where did three years ago felt like uh, I spoke with you yesterday? Yes, well, uh, congratulations on uh, having, I think, what is it, your your ninth season now? With eighth, Veritas? eighth season. Eight season. season. That's, that's great. So much information you've put out there, and I'm very happy to be a part of that. Absolutely. And you were part from the very, very beginning. I think you were one of the very first programs that, that we did. But let me begin this interview, Michael, with a question coming from an, an open-minded skeptic. In your book, you, you thank us and cite a number of whistleblowers. If our government, or as the late Senator Daniel Inouye used to say, the secret government beyond ours, if these whistleblowers are speaking out and nothing happens to them, how do we know they're not making things up? Or perhaps are this information or misinformation agents? Logic tells me, that, and this is just my humble opinion, that if any information they're sharing could compromise the elite, fill in the blanks, the powers that want to be, since they allegedly have advanced technology and weaponry to silence them, how is it that they still are able to disclose all of this unimpeded? Your comments about this. Uh, sure, Mel. Well, uh, leaking uh, information is uh, a long-term uh, technique used by various bureaucracies that are at war with one another or that have competing interests. Um, you, you go back to the uh, Daniel Ellsberg uh, leaking of the Pentagon Papers, um, and uh, and some say that that was a, a, an effort by the CIA to taint the Pentagon. Um, so it's it's not just a matter of a whistleblower releasing uh, top secret information. Um, you've got to look at well, what institution is behind that whistleblower that has enabled him or her to come forward with that information? And what we're getting now with the secret space program whistleblowers is a, a lot of whistleblowers coming up with uh, information uh, that uh, they have experienced directly. Uh, but they are being supported uh, unofficially uh, or behind the scenes at least by uh, various branches of the U.S. military uh, because, uh, according to my research, uh, the U.S. military is the, the main institution in the United States that has the most to lose um, by the process of globalization whereby elite entities uh, that are embedded within transnational corporations are internationalizing their power and resources. And in doing so, uh, they are basically putting together what eventually will be a world army. And in the process, the U.S. military will eventually be eclipsed and um, in the long term eliminated. And I believe that uh, the people in the U.S. military are aware of this. And uh, so they are authorizing their military, uh, their whistleblowers to come forward to expose what's been going on. Why would we need a world army if there's not a threat from above, unless the threat is you and I, if you will? Um, I think uh, the people, uh, well, let's kind of identify you know, who really is running the show here. And I, I think uh, you and most of the audience would agree that uh, transnational uh, corporations that are 
that have unbounded influence in terms of uh, resources, wealth, penetration into government government institutions, religious institutions, universities. The corporatocracy. Exactly, yes, the corporatocracy, that uh, these organizations are really all about accumulating power. And uh, they are the ones that basically want to create what eventually will be a world army under a new world government, uh, which they secretly manipulate behind the scenes. So just as the United States government uh, currently is uh, pretty thoroughly controlled by uh, US-based corporations that dictate how Congress uh, passes legislation and uh, influences the policy-making process as far as the, the executive branch of government is concerned, they want to replicate that at a global level so that they have a one-world army, a kind of uh, uh, pretty close to a one-world government. And I think that this is the way in which uh, this uh, corporatocracy uh, wants to, to really run the show. But if we have a one-world military. Right now we have the US, we have Russia, we have China, you know, the big players. In the future, if we have regions, that the East versus the West, at least you can put them to fight against each other. But if we have a one world military, who would be their adversary if it's a unite unified military for the world? Well, I think this is uh, gets into the disclosure issue. Um, as, as long as uh, uh, people can be motivated uh, to work as hard as they can uh, to basically uh, allow the corporatocracy to uh, produce the goods that they desire to build and accumulate the profits that they that they want. Uh, they're going to always find ways to motivate people to work harder um, and to kind of like really... Um, frighten them into surrendering their liberties uh, so that whatever agenda the corporatocracy has can be realized. And they've been playing a lot of cards along the way. Um, you know, currently, the big card is uh, terrorists, international terrorism, as we well know. And I, I think uh, Carol Rosen hit the nail on the head when she said uh, that uh, Werner von Braun was a party to these high-level uh, corporate discussions about a range of threats that would be sequentially presented to the to the world population uh, that would go through uh, things that we've seen, such as the Cold War. Uh, then there'll be terrorism. After terrorism, there'll be the, the threat from meteoroids, asteroids type thing. And then eventually there'll be... The last card. Exactly. The, the, the final card will be the extraterrestrial card. And that'll be the one that, that really enables uh, corporations... I, I think if they, you know, the way they plan to play that card in terms of like a, um, a false alien invasion, to, to really accumulate um, unparalleled power globally, where you would have something like a, a one-world government, a one-world uh, army that is really all about the corporatocracy, uh, concentrating power and influence in world institutions so that uh, they can manipulate humanity uh, for whatever purpose they want. And the extraterrestrial threat will be a means for them to do that. I'm thinking of uh, the speech that Ronald Reagan gave in 1987, which I used to have on this radio program for many years. But, you know, the, in our obsession with antagonisms of the moment, we often forget how much unites all the members of humanity. Perhaps we need to, some outside universal threat 
to make us recognize this common bond. I occasionally think how quickly our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. Wouldn't that be the slogan for that unified factor for the militarization of the world because we're fighting an exterior force that only a unified planet can fight? Precisely, yes. That is a very important actual statement by Reagan. And as of course, he made it several times as well as at the United Nations General Assembly. But the thing to keep in mind is that Just only a couple of years, only a few years after he started making those comments, uh, you had the end of the Cold War and you had unparalleled cooperation uh, between the, uh, f the former Soviet Union and the United States. Um, and uh, this was very significant because for a short period of time um, at the end of the Cold War, uh, there, there was this unparalleled cooperation at an international level. And I think what many people don't really appreciate is just how significant uh, Reagan's statement was for that cooperation, uh, that uh, this really behind the scenes was responsible for something that uh, I, I discuss in the book and that you mentioned earlier in terms of a, a global galactic league of nations secret space program. But I believe that uh, Reagan's comments Uh, was a, a powerful stimulus for the world's nations to come together behind the scenes to collaborate on joint ventures in space because they tr truly believed that uh, Reagan was correct, that there was an outside alien threat. And if, and if Reagan and the people that briefed Reagan can, can fool or manipulate um, international statesmen behind the scenes to collaborate in setting up a, a global galactic league of nations space program i think it's pretty clear that uh, once they unleash this alien threat to the global public it'll be a, a very easy sell for them or at least they think so i have uh, heard from john lear that there's a secret fleet of space shuttles but again knowing that the technologies from the 1970s or 60s actually, makes me wonder why they would have space shuttles when I'm sure they have anti-gravitic or electromagnetic spacecraft. But about the space shuttle, have you seen the alleged photogra photographs of six out of these seven Challenger astronauts that supposedly died who may in fact be alive today? Have you seen that? Uh, no, no, I haven't, Mel. Um, but as far as uh, this secret uh, fleet of uh space shuttles is concerned, I, I think that uh, that's absolutely correct, that uh, there has been uh, capacity for the United States to, to place um, fleets of uh, shuttles into near-Earth orbit uh, to service a number of uh, hidden or cloaked space programs or, or space stations in space. And um, you know, there's, a, there's a very famous passage in Ronald Reagan's uh, diaries in 1985 where he says he had lunch with five Uh, scientists that told him about um, America's capacity to place uh, 300 people in orbit. So this is in 1985. Now, the space shuttle, um, as we know it, uh, only went into operation in 1981, and there were only five operational space shuttles built, and they could carry out a maximum of 10. So obviously, Reagan was talking about some other program. He was talking about the secret uh, space shuttle program that was run by the U.S. military, and in particular, 
it was run by the, the Air Force, the US Air Force and the National Reconnaissance Office. Those two entities have been primarily responsible for the development of uh, space stations in near-Earth orbit and in the deployment and the monitoring of traffic uh, coming into and out of, um, out of the Earth. There, there is a division of labor in terms of uh, various branches of the military performing functions, but it's the Air Force and the NRO that are in charge of that fleet of uh, secret space shuttles and the cloaked space stations in orbit around the Earth. And by the way, what I mentioned about the Challenger astronauts, anybody can go to Google and find it. And I'm not saying that whatever you find on Google is true. You have to have your own discernment. But take a look at, just type Challenger astronauts alive, and you'll see six out of the seven will have a picture next to the original ones and the one from now. And if you click on it, it'll tell you what they're doing today. Even some of them are professors at reputable universities using their own names. So anyway, just wanted to put that out there. But and here's a question I ask most guests who discuss space, and, and no one seems to answer, Michael, about our spacecraft that we have. What do they, what do they push against once they make it, you know, outside of our, our gravitational forces? If space is a vacuum, I'm talking about NASA propulsion, not the classified anti-gravitic technologies that that we may have secretly been developing you know by the military corporate entities and are being kept from the public you know for over 70 years but what do we use in order to push against once you're outside of of our atmosphere uh, sure. Well, I, I think you're referring to the kind of Newtonian principle of uh, uh, propulsion. Correct. A, a force is ejected in terms of uh, uh, highly accelerated gases that enable a craft to be propelled forward. Um, this is something that uh, is certainly part of the, the secret space programs that have been set up um, in terms of what I just mentioned uh, with the Air Force and the NRO maintaining uh, fleets of uh, secret space shuttles and uh, space stations in orbit around the Earth, um, those do use uh, kind of more conventional propulsion systems that do, do use that kind of Newtonian principle of uh, equal and opposite reaction where you, you have the, the, the liquid propellants being thrust out. Um, as far as anti-gravity technologies are concerned, um, those are used for more sophisticated uh, space programs that are, that are run by the, by the U.S. Navy. And uh, these uh, programs use different principles uh, such as gravity reduction and um, and also uh, an ability to uh, lock on to gravity fields generated by distant bodies so that uh, so that there can be a thrust delivered to a spacecraft that whose gravity has been reduced to oh, sorry whose mass has been reduced uh, to to some kind of negligible figure so that uh, any thrust that, that that spacecraft has is going to propel it through space at a very highly accelerated uh, uh, velocity. And that makes a lot of sense. But even when you watch science fiction, you know, Battlestar Galactica, Star Wars, you see these spacecraft 
always with fire coming out of their engines and pushing forward. And I've always wondered, I'm not a scientist, but it does not make sense to me to have that type of technology flying across the universe. Unless, as you say, it's being pushed because you're close to, to a body that has a gravitational force that you can push against. But otherwise, it's just, to me, a fallacy. Um, well, I, I think it's um, there are different classifications in terms of uh, technologies that are used in these various programs, and I think that each level of classification is going to be using a more sophisticated form of technology. So um, in, in terms of the ground floor of classified propulsion technologies, um, you, you, you would have technologies that would enable um, space stations to be built in space using cloaked technologies uh, or, and, and that this, this would be using those kind of rocket propulsion uh, principles so that, um, yes, certainly uh, the material or the rockets that are used to supply the NRO and the Air Force uh, space stations would, would use some form of conventional uh, rocket propulsion. Uh, but then when we're looking at, at deep space fleets, uh, then that certainly wouldn't be using any kind of rocket propulsion. And you mentioned Gary McKinnon at the beginning of the book. I don't like to call him a hacker since I, he actually did not, in my opinion, technically hacked into anything. He logged into servers with no password. It's like me walking down an aisle and, and your office is open and I see these incredible items from the hallway. Of course, I'd be curious, but refresh our minds. What did Gary find out? And didn't he link the Navy with these craft that he found? Well, yeah, Gary McKinnon is, is a very important case because, um, as I think most of your listeners are, are aware of, I mean, he was uh, for uh, nearly a decade or even more than a decade involved in an extradition attempt by the U.S. government for you know, for hacking, well, that was the official charge, hacking into um, classified computers and doing irreparable harm to the national security complex. Um, and so that suggested that he was certainly someone that had seen things that he was not supposed to see. And, and um, you know, as, as you say, I mean, the, the security uh, networks was very poorly protected. Um, and so, yeah, you could question whether it was hacking after all as, a, as opposed to just kind of walking in and seeing what was available. But he, he, what he did see uh, were, were things that suggested that uh, the U.S. Navy was involved in some secret space program. He saw um, Excel sheets uh, talking about fleet-to-fleet -fleet transfers, uh, lists of non-terrestrial officers. He saw the names of um, very large ships uh, that were not part of the kind of uh, list of aircraft carriers uh, used by the U.S. Navy. But these, these were ships that uh, were part of these kind of fleet-to-fleet -fleet transfers. So um, he didn't, unfortunately, remember any of the names of these uh, ships, but that was, that was very important. Um, he also saw um, a cigar-shaped ship uh, that was clearly using anti-gravity uh, principles because it was uh, able to um, you know, hang in space, sta stationary. So this was clearly anti-gravity as opposed to some kind of rocket propulsion system. Um, and so these were things that hinted at the U.S. Navy being involved in some kind of secret space program utilizing anti-gravity technologies. 
what was it? Uh, Curtis LeMay was one of them. Roscoe Hilling Cutter was the other one. And we couldn't find a Navy ship with that name. So it was USSS, those names. Uh, well, well, that's right. Yes, there, there have been uh, rumours uh, that, uh, as you said, Curtis LeMay, Roscoe Hill and Kunta, that um, these were some of the names of those sh- uh, ships. But uh, when I tried to track down uh, the source of those quotes um, and McKinnon himself, he always said that he was too doped to remember the names. So McKinnon himself hasn't said um, I don't. I haven't found any interview where McKinnon mentions the names of the ships that he saw on those um, Pentagon uh, computers. But he did say he did see a list of ships. But those names, um, they, you know, they're not confirmed. But but certainly, people do say that uh, those are some of the ships that are up there. But um, you know, according to McKinnon, um, you know, that's not what he remembers. He may not remember or he wants to just lay low because of uh, the fact that his case is now dropped and uh, he doesn't want to rock that boat. But now let's discuss Corey Good for the record. I have tried to contact Mr. Good directly and through David Wilcock and to no avail. But I have to ask, how is it that he's able to continue doing this, similar to the question I asked you at the beginning? He created, he was authorized to actually uh, create a program, a long online television series called Cosmic Disclosure, Inside the Secret Space Program. This is slow drip disclosure, in your opinion. How do we know this is not more disinformation? Well, Corey Good is, is really an incredible whistleblower in terms of the extent of information that he has. Um, um, in, in the book, I discuss his background, uh, the timeline that he was involved in, where he says that he served a 20-year tour of duty with uh, several secret space programs from 1987 to 2007. And then he was uh, age-regressed and time-traveled back um, and had his memories wiped. But nevertheless, I remembered uh, the majority of what happened to him because uh, uh, the technology was not successful and that uh, since around 2011, he's been having contacts with a group of extraterrestrials uh, called the Sphere Being Alliance uh, that have entered or are part of formal negotiations uh, between the secret space programs that Corey Good formerly served on with different groups of extraterrestrials as well as different groups of uh, breakaway civilizations and secret societies. So the, the extent of information Corey has is, is incredibly wide and the experiences. Um, now, this is where it gets interesting is, well, you know, obviously, is it true? You know, did this man serve for 20 years on these secret space programs and, and since 2011 um, you know, get contacted by ETs and is now, since uh, to early 2015, being a party to these ongoing negotiations between these different secret space programs and different extraterrestrial alliances and 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 government elites. Um, that's that's the key question and um, in the research that I've done I've I've found no inconsistency nothing that makes me question uh, Corey Good's validity what I did find was that a lot of the things that he said uh, uh, were consistent with uh, another secret space program whistleblower that I had uh, become involved in 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 2014, uh, Randy Kramer, who I believe you you know, uh, or sure. even interviewed, I believe I think, 
and uh, he his testimony was uh, paralleled many of the things that Corey Good said. So that really got my attention, um, as did uh, Corey Good's uh, description of a of a breakaway civilization that he called the Mayan uh, breakaway group, and and that that definitely got my attention because I had my own experiences back in 2010 where I was approached while I was uh, at a conference in Mexico City uh, by two individuals that belonged to a program uh, that was run by a Mayan civilization. Uh, and at, at the time, because no one else had ever mentioned any kind of Mayan space program or breakaway civilization, I, I just kind of kept it in my database of... Mayan S S as the Mayans from the pyramids in Mexico, you mean? Exactly, yes. Huh. That this, these were two individuals um, that said that they were working uh, with a Mayan civilization that had spaceships and that were operating um, in in our operating throughout our solar system and in our galaxy, and uh, that uh, they they actually had a training program, and they asked if I wanted to be part of the training program. That uh, they said that. This was something that was open to me, that I was being given an invitation. Now, oh. uh, these, were two, these were two people that were very credible. One, one was an electrical engineer with his own company. The other one was a dentist uh, with his own practice. So these are professionals. And you know, these are not people that are going to be playing practical jokes on, in, on tourists. Uh, no possible motivation, and I've stayed in touch with them ever since. And uh, yeah, they, I'm con I am convinced that they are in touch with a Mayan uh, breakaway civilization that sometime in the history of, of the Mayan people had achieved space flight and was able to deploy uh, these advanced technologies sufficiently to uh, take a number or a large number of their people off planet to develop or to start colonies throughout space. So that was my experience from 2010, and, and Corey... Uh, would... hold, hold, hold it right there about the 2000. I'll stay with that. That's a fascinating story, Michael, because a lot of people say, you know, what happened to the technology? Egyptians, Maya, Aztecs, Inca, etc. And, and some people say, what happened to the people? Well, they're still there. I, lived, I worked in Mexico City for a few years, and some of my employees were pure Maya. So they're still there. The question is, what happened to the information? Question number one. And number two, you probably have seen this video that circulated many years ago, allegedly from astronauts that went to the moon. They found a ship, and they extracted what seemed to be the body of a female-looking indigenous with his wardrobe. And do you know what I'm talking about? I think, is that the, the Mona Lisa and the uh, the Apollo 20 um, mission to the moon? Correct, correct. Yes, okay. Um, I, I, and you're, you're suggesting that uh, there was a main connection to that? Well, she definitely looks indigenous to, to what, what, you know, tribes in Mesoamerica look like. Right, okay. Well, um Yes, this is uh, this is the kind of incredible thing about the Mayan civilization. Um, many people are aware that uh, you know their civilization kind of uh, achieved uh, a very sophisticated um, calendar system, and had achieved uh, you know great breakthroughs in terms of astronomy and uh, and knowledge, and then kind of almost overnight vanished. 
And of course, people say, "Well, where did where did they go? You know, did they just kind of uh, phase shift to a higher dimension, as people like James Redfield says in the Celestine prophecy?" Well, according to That's right. according to the people that I met in Mexico City, um, a significant number of the Mayans, and we can talk about their their elite, um, had developed uh, advanced space technology and that they were able to basically develop uh, bases and deep space uh, flight where they were able to move a significant number of their population to these uh, bases uh, uh, scattered throughout our solar system or throughout the galaxy. Um, so, so this was a, a fascinating chapter in, in human history and I, I think it's something that is supported by uh, various hieroglyphs that many of the kind of ancient alien um, uh, television shows have, have, captured, have captured to a certain extent where they show these Mayan glyphs of, you know, like Lord Pakal in what looks like a, a, a rocket ship being kind of launched um, and, and also other um, uh, artifacts that seem to be of flying saucers and of aliens. So I think when you look at all of the artifacts, uh, certainly the Mayans had experience or um, information about spaceflight. And while that may not have been kind of shared with all of the population, it was uh, something known to a significant number of the Mayans who developed a space program. And I think that that space program continues today. And by the way, I've been in communication since you mentioned the Celestine Prophecy with uh, James Redfield's uh, people, and uh, he will be coming here to discuss a new book that he's writing. So that's exciting news. That was a great book that, you know, as you know, from the 1990s, The Celestine Prophecy. But I don't mean to be coming across as a debunker. I'm not. Uh, but I think it's important to be extremely discerning about any information that is presented. And not to digress, but I have another radio program that deals with the secrets of health and longevity. And I have credible information that indicates that health cures are not in the best interest of the pharmaceutical complex. And this is why I'm saying this. They operate like a government with its own intelligence apparatus, and, and they will do what they have to do to prevent their revenue stream from being compromised by anyone out there finding cures. There's a preponderance of evidence and, and people who have been sent to prison for a very long time for trying you know, to find cures. Now, why would the military-industrial complex that perpetuate wars and, and basically uses petroleum as a way to keep the population hostage without new technologies. Why would they allow this information to get out if true? Well, I, I think that the uh, U.S. military, um, this is an organization uh, which by its uh, history and the values of the officer corps um, basically rep presents or views themselves as defenders of the of the American Republic and of the US Constitution uh, the, the every military officer has to swear allegiance to the Constitution to defend and protect the Constitution against all enemies uh, internal and external and and that's a very important insight into the value system of the officer corps uh, that is deeply involved in these secret space programs um, because the corporations uh, that are also involved in the manufacturing of the spacecraft and the advanced technologies that are used in these space programs, uh, they, 
don't have that kind of allegiance to the US Constitution or any constitution. I mean, their 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 basic allegiance is to their corporation and to the and, and to the basically the the bottom line, which is the profit mode. The shareholders. And, Exactly. So it's like uh, you've got two very different value systems. And while they needed each other at the beginning um, in the 1950s and 60s and 70s, when uh, these technologies were first discovered, um, studied, and then funds were needed to uh, secretly build these technologies in remote locations, um, and that this took decades to do. And then eventually, uh, these uh, secret space programs were uh, operationalized in the 1980s. And, um, and that's when you, you have a, a kind of divergence of interests, because um, while the US military uh, provides contracts for the corporations to build these uh, space battle groups, um, once the corporations have built these battle groups, there's nothing stopping them from building additional spacecraft uh, for, for the highest bidder. And, and so when you have transnational organizations uh, with uh, incredible wealth and resources uh, in existence, and you have corporations with the know-how and the resources to build advanced space uh, battle groups, um, then it's not only going to be the U.S. military that's going to be building these things, but it's also going to be these transnational corporations that are going to be building their own parallel fleets. Well, and once you once you have the once you have the funding for research and development, that's the majority of the funds that you need. You get it from the government. Once you once you have proof of concept, you have one product delivered, then you have the concept right with you that you can resell to, as you say, the highest bidder. Well, exactly right. So you look at all of the companies that are involved in building these uh, secret space battle fleets uh, that is that is used by the U.S. Navy, uh, Northrop Grumman, Lockheed Martin, General Dynamics, and so many other transnational corporations around the world. Um, you know, these these companies, um, you know, they'll build for whoever they they see. Uh, is going to help them maximize profits. And so the, the U.S. Navy is just one customer. Uh, the transnational um, corporations or you know, what is kind of uh, probably more accurately known as the cabal, the Illuminati, you know, they're going to be another customer. And, and because the cabal, the Illuminati, have uh, resources that dwarf what the U.S. Navy is able to gather together to purchase their space battle fleets, that means that the Illuminati, um, the Majestic Group, are going to be able to build parallel space fleets that eventually eclipse what the Navy has, has built. And, and that, is, that is really the key to understanding why you have uh, a number of whistleblowers coming forward now because the U.S. Navy are not stupid. You know, these are smart people. They realize that if the status quo continues, and it's already happened, uh, that eventually the, the Navy's space fleet, which is called uh, Solar Warden, that will be eclipsed uh, by the parallel space program that is controlled by these transnational corporations that is, work, that is working with the Cabal Illuminati. And, and that is what has happened, and that the, the Navy realizes that the only means by which they can prevent this process by continuing and, um, and eventually 
stopping what they see in the future will be uh, an effort, an attempt by this uh, transnational entity to kind of like eliminate uh, the, the the military space program is um, ex- uh, disclosure is to have disclosure so that that way you you have uh, uh, representative governments getting control over these space fleets and ensuring that uh, they are put under the the, the kind of uh, constitutional order of things which will mean that the military rather than these transnational entities will be in control of these incredibly powerful space fleets. Well, I hope this happens because it smells like coup d'etat coming our way if this continues. But you remember who said this? I quoted him at the beginning of the show. There exists a shadowy government with its own Air Force, its own Navy, its own fundraising mechanism, and the ability to pursue its own ideas of national interest free from all checks and balances and free from the law itself. Now, when you think of those words... Senator from Hawaii, the late Senator Daniel K. Inui. What do you think about those words? Well, I, I think uh, Senator Inui was very aware of this parallel system that exists um, that works kind of like a side-by-side with the legitimate government authority, but with these transnational entities behind it, giving it uh, un- kind of unlimited influence um, in the ability to be able to uh, control and manipulate um, legislative uh, bodies, not just in the United States, but all over the world, and also with the, the means to be able to uh, accumulate uh, military resources and financial resources so that they can conduct covert operations and all sorts of um, military projects around the world where they see fit. And um, you know, and, and Anui was uh, kind of like a very important uh, person in terms of uh, exposing the existence of this shadowy entity. And and I think that we really need to keep in mind that there's just not one shadowy entity. You know, there are a number of them, and that uh, ultimately uh, we need to be really trying to expose um, as much as we can about the various corporations and secret societies uh, and uh, control groups that are involved in the uh, in the manufacturing and in the deployment of these uh, secret space battle fleets um, the use of uh, all kinds of advanced travel technologies to place people and resources on planets or or stations throughout not only our solar system but throughout the galaxy that that we really need to kind of get a, a grasp on all of this and that that means uh, kind of opening our minds and considering the testimony of uh, you know not just one whistleblower but uh, quite a few of them now that are coming forward revealing their participation in these programs when i think of electricity and magnetism magnetism i think of anti-gravity and perpetual motion which brings me to, to a conversation I had with Dr. Paul Aviolette a few years ago about the fact that no one can request a patent for a perpetual motion machine. The question is why? Is it because it's against national security? I guess if you operate beyond the government, you don't need a patent. Your take on this? Well, you know, this is uh, very important in terms of uh, the, the way the patent process works. Um, you know, we, we have... Uh, Patents uh, that are kind of part of the the white world, uh, that is that you you go to the U.S. Patents Office or the equivalent in any other country and you you look up the patents that exist on all sorts of things. Um, But uh, when it comes to anti-gravity technology, you, you don't see anything. Not that 
these patents don't exist. It's just that they have become classified. And um, you know, Dr. Tom Vallone uh, has done a, a really good job, and I believe uh, Paul LaVioletta has also done it as well in terms of uh, identifying a period in the, uh, in the history of uh, U.S. corporations where they began to uh, study um, anti-gravity principles and technologies and in the 1950s towards the end of that all of a sudden um, these uh, discussions and the the studies went silent now that didn't mean that they stopped all it meant that was that they, they became classified and so i think that when it comes to patents of uh, anti-gravity technologies um, these are classified they exist in the black world uh, they are withheld from the white world and any individual that comes up with any kind of anti-gravity technology that is uh, functional um, you know very soon um, either they're going to be you know they're going to be approached by someone and, and given the old kind of carrot and stick um, inducement to you know um, sell out or, or keep their technology quiet he also told me that the b2 bomber may have electrified wings which makes you wonder how fast and how high it can go, but the B-2 bomber, which, by the way, at a price tag of $2 billion, is worth more than its weight in gold. What is it? 158,100 pounds times 14,285 per pound of gold equals $2.2 billion. So no, not quite, but almost there. And uh, do you think there are other aircraft in our military fleet that may possess anti-gravitic properties like the F-35 maybe? Um, well, yeah, that's a really uh, interesting question. Um, I, I do tackle that in my book in terms of uh, how the the military uh, was able to use uh, stealth technology as a cover for anti-gravity technologies. Um, and as you mentioned, the B-2 bomber, um, that uh, this is uh, really the, the first kind of uh, stealth bomber built by the, by the U.S., uh, but that when Paul LaViolette and other scientists uh, began to examine uh, the various materials used in the construction of the B-2 um, to, to give it that kind of stealth technology. They also found that it gave the B-2 uh, enormous electrostatic uh, potential so that uh, you could have these huge electrostatic charges building on different parts of the plane, which would then create the, the kind of anti-gravity uh, thrusting effect uh, as predicted by the Byfield Brown. Um, uh, pattern from uh, from the early from from the 1920s. Uh, so so this is uh, something that um, belongs to a class of uh, U.S. Uh, aircraft. Uh, the the F-22 is also a uh, a stealth aircraft. So and it also uses um, certain uh, materials that uh, give it what appears to be this kind of electrostatic. Uh, potential that could be used for an anti-gravity effect, and there have been a number of um, aerospace researchers that say that uh, some versions of the F-22, along with the F-35, um, as well as, of course, the the Aurora program, uh, which takes us into discussion about the you know, SR-74, the SR-75, um, that all of these um, use, to varying extents, these kind of anti-gravity um, thrusting technologies. Someone told me that the B-2 bomber's landing gear is just there for, for show. So think about that thought. But what about the, again, you mentioned the Aurora spy plane, the SR-74, 75. 
How about the TR3B? I remember how some of our technology was publicly displayed for the first time during the first Gulf War in 1991. Do you think there will be a time soon when they'll finally display publicly these triangular craft that many people, including me, by the way, and I'm a skeptic, but I have seen them, have seen through infrared goggles, and it's, you know, they seem to be the 3i3b, and by the way, this is 1980s technology. Imagine what they have now. Well, that's exactly right, Mel. Um, the the TR3B, the, the flying triangle, I mean, that was very well documented in terms of uh, the Belgium UFO sightings from uh, 1989-1990. There have been a number of whistleblowers that have come forward, very credible uh, whistleblowers, uh, that have uh, talked about uh, their involvement or their knowledge of the manufacturing or the construction of the TR-3B. Uh, Edgar Fouché basically uh, said that uh, the, the TR-3B, um, that he became aware of it in um, that in the early 1990s, um, that it was based out of the S-4 facility at Area 51. Um, and, and so the, the TR-3B is something that has been around for quite some time. It does use these anti-gravity technologies, uh, one um, you know, using electrostatics for providing thrust. Another uh, technology is uh, high-frequency rotating plasma fields, typically uh, using some form of uh, mercury, which when they uh, are rotated at a very high velocity, uh, cre- create this kind of um, gravity reduction effect. And so you, you have these, like the TR3B, um, it, it uses this kind of plasma rotating field to reduce its its gravity to, um, you know, I think, uh, by a factor of 97%. And then the electrostatic uh, propulsion system it has can propel it forward at a very rapid velocity. So that's the TR3B. But as you said, um, you know, that's uh, 90, early 1990s technology. And what's important to keep in mind is uh, that the TR3B is is up much older than that. Um, you know, this is where Corey Good has some very interesting information. He says that the the TR3B actually was a hand me down from the secret space program. <laughs> really? Uh, yeah, that because it was old technology. That so that even though the um, um, in the early 1990s, uh, the people over at Area 51 first saw the TR-3B, and they thought, wow, this is incredible. This is the most advanced stuff in the in the U.S. kind of aerospace industry. This is really, you know, above top secret. That, that even then, that was a hand-me-down, that uh, the TR-3B had been built uh, a, a lot earlier than that, but it was old technology by the early 1990s and was kind of handed down to um, various uh, elite um, entities and, and of course, uh, those um, at Area 51, S4, they got their own uh, TR-3Bs for studying and use. And so um, so this is uh, kind of, even in the early 1990s, was already kind of old technology. So that gives you an idea of the kind of technology which is used uh, in the, the, the most advanced secret space programs. And by the way, when I say when I say that I've seen them, I have seen them through infrared goggles multiple times, and you you see the same videos all over YouTube. I wonder what would happen if you presented this to to you know any government entity to say, look, is our money going here? What would they say? Space debris, swamp gas, satellites. Yeah, well, this is part of the the way in which the secrecy system operates. That. 
um, these kinds of advanced technologies um, advance in the sense that uh, they are much more sophisticated than the traditional propulsion technologies using uh, liquid propellants. Uh, these kind of anti-gravity technologies uh, or, or advanced stealth technologies that use uh, some of these uh, electrostatic um, anti-gravity propulsion systems, when they are shown to public officials, whether we're talking about uh, people in the um, US Congress or whether we're talking about um, um, corporate officials, that when these people see these things, um, they are sworn to secrecy and they don't realise that these, what appear to them to be sophisticated um, technologies, are in fact cover programs, that they are cover programs for even more advanced technologies. So this is the way in which the, the, the secrecy system operates both in the US military and in the aerospace uh, industry, that you have classified programs which are covers for more highly classified programs, which are in turn covers for the, the kind of most, uh, the deepest dark black programs that are used for these secret space programs. Even Dr. Fred Bell, the late Dr. Fred Bell, gave me his testimonial. Anybody can listen to our interview when he was uh, hiking in Southern California behind his house. All of a sudden, he saw one of these TR-3Bs flying over him because apparently it was disabled and it was being escorted by several military helicopters, but the craft was flying so so low and so slow that he said, there's no way there's any type of propulsion that we, you know, civilians know about it. This thing was definitely operating with some kind of anti-gravitic property that would allow it to fly so slow. Well, yes, um, and there, of course, have been many other sightings like that, and, and the most uh, kind of widespread and most well-documented, of course, are the ones in, in Belgium, where you had thousands of people seeing these uh, low-flying uh, triangles that uh, exhibited anti-gravity technologies, and there was uh, film and photographs taken, and, and some of those are available now. You, you actually see um, very clearly in these pictures uh, what appears to be a, a TR-3B that uh, um, is using anti-gravity technology. And imagine, the if this is 1980s, 90s technology, imagine what they have now. Well, we have cloaking technology that they are using in the battlefield today, even with our own military. So imagine what they have. And I remember my conversation with uh, Milton Torres, the very first interview I did, when he told me that they had on his plane in 1957, they had a computer that would lock a missile if it, you know, triggers something in front of him. What he saw was a UFO the size of a aircraft carrier, and if if it locked, it would shoot, but the thing disappeared, and the computer did not allow the missile to be deployed. This is 1957. Imagine what we have today. Well, well, that's right, yes. Uh, these uh, these cloaking technologies, uh, they are very advanced, and I, I think that they, they are used in some of the programs. Um, I, I think uh, I mentioned earlier the National Re uh, Reconnaissance Office and the Air Force maintain a number of uh, space stations in near-Earth orbit, and these use cloaking technologies. And, and even in the white world, uh, you have uh, cloaking technologies that, uh, have, uh, that have been acknowledged to be under development uh, by DARPA and various organizations. And, and of course, anything that is announced publicly to the media 
um, in terms of uh, technology under study and development, you can be sure that it has been um, at least for 30 years studied in classified programs and developed uh, to its fullest potential. So the very fact that DARPA and uh, other uh, organizations have openly admitted that they're studying uh, cloaking technologies, um, you know, invisibility shields, even um, agents being able to use a kind of invisibility cloak. I mean, these are technologies that DARPA has openly admitted that it, that it is studying. Uh, you can be sure that that's a, that's a confession, uh, really um, kind of an indirect confession that this has been already secretly developed uh, in the black programs and is being used. And we have to take a one and only intermission. But when we return, we're going to get to the nitty gritty of all of this. I know people want to know, really, what are the origins? What about the origins of the secret space program? Also, we hear these names, the real society. We think of the Nazis having, quote unquote, lost the war. But what if they actually had a tactical win in that war? And in fact, they went, as many speculate, to South America, to Antarctica, and they moved a lot of that equipment, even in the 1930s, prior to the war. And I have some theories that I'd like to share with Michael and the world and see what your reaction is. How can people buy the book Insiders Reveal Secret Space Programs and Extraterrestrial Alliances, Michael? Uh, probably the easiest way is to just go to Amazon.com and, and just uh, do a search for the title of the book, Insiders Reveal Secret Space Programs, or my name, Michael Sala. Or they can go to my website, um, exopolitics.org, and they can order an autographed copy from that. So uh, that's certainly uh, another option. Well, folks, don't go anywhere. Fascinating talk with Dr. Michael Sala. I'm Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you for listening to the first segment of this very important Veritas interview. If you enjoyed it and wish to listen to the rest, go to veritasradio.com, click on Members, or subscribe or tell someone else who will enjoy this and all our radio programs. If you are listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store, where you can purchase pure organic sulfur, earthing and grounding products, supplements, our USB drive with all our shows, gift certificates, rebounders, fulvic acid, full-body vibration machines, and much more. Now, we'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and I'll see you in the Veritas member section. Enjoy. Mm-hmm. 